Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 88 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name's Dan Hasler and before we kick off our show today, I just wanted to let you know that the Habits of Leadership Academy is back for 2024. The Academy is your opportunity to engage with me or Perco or other members of our team to dig into different episodes of the podcast. Together we'll explore the principles and the frameworks that were introduced to us and we talk about how you can apply that in your day-to-day leadership. In essence, we try and take the ideas and the concepts and make them real. There's also the opportunity for you to bring your own challenges that you're facing in the leadership and together we'll coach you through a way of thinking about and perhaps even acting differently in order to address those challenges in your workplace. You can register individually, you can register with a colleague, you can even bring a whole team. So if you're keen to find out more about the Habits of Leadership Academy and what it looks like and what's involved, then head over to habitsofleadership.com and click on the Academy page there. We kick off in February, so there's plenty of time to get stuff organized, Um, but we would urge you, if you're interested, to jump in quick because we keep our groups really, really small to ensure that we really get to know you and we get some quality work done. Now, with all that said, on to today's show. My guest today is Julian Reeve the former music director of Hamilton, the global smash hit musical. When he was 43, Julian suffered a heart attack, a direct result of stress, workaholism and perfectionism. He's now fully recovered and retired from performing and he spends his time coaching other people how to, I guess, guard against the dangers of workaholism, perfectionism and burnout. He's got a really interesting story to tell and some really practical advice. So I am delighted to say that Julian's here with us today. Julian, thanks so much for coming on the show. Great to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me. Um, Everything I've read about you and everything I've heard um, of your story, you've got a fascinating story and you share some really, not just interesting insights and strategies, but really useful ones too. And to bring people into the picture... Um, about your story what I'd like to kind of do it is this way I'd like you to we'll we'll start with what you do now in a kind of abbreviated fashion we'll talk a little bit about what brought you to this point because I think as I said that's really interesting and there'll be lots of people listening who can really uh, connect with different aspects of that story and then the crucial piece of this you know our podcast is called Habits of Leadership and so I think really digging into some of the useful and perhaps less useful habits um, that people might want to think about um, when it comes to managing their, their levels of uh, burnout and, and, and wellness and, and performance. So let's kick off with that first one, Julian. Um, I want you to imagine for a second that, um, I mean, you're in LA, so you're probably at parties every night. I don't know. But let's <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> that really happens down Yeah, of here, course you know. it does. Of course it does. <laughs> and, and you rarely, yeah, but let's say, just just go with my stereotype for a moment. Okay, you're at a yeah, party. Yeah. You're at a party you're yeah. at a party and uh, someone you'd not met before you come up you strike up conversation and inevitably at some point the the conversation turns to so Julian what what, what do you do you know what how, how do you how do you how do you you know make it make a crust um sure. what, what what do you how, how do you encapsulate what you do for, for a job or for a living now 
Yeah, well, um, what what answer would I give to that question? I would say mm. I help creative high achievers and the organisations they work for achieve success in healthier ways, avoiding burnout. Mm. Um, I run a, a consultancy called Perfect Equilibrium. I regard Perfect Equilibrium as ostensibly the sweet spot where we operate at optimum levels in mind, body and spirit because we're paying attention to systems, support, and strategy. Um, and, you know, where, where it gets exciting as far as burnout goes is when we combine the responsibility of stress and burnout management um, with organisations and individuals. So both parties take uh, responsibility and they work together and that's when things get exciting and we move out of burnout and into perfect equilibrium. Yeah, I mean, that in itself, I think, is a fascinating, um, I'm going to use the word tension, because I'd imagine, I don't know, but I'd imagine that the reason we're having this conversation is that a lot of people would find it hard to strike that balance. To, it, they would find it hard. It, a lot. I, I genuinely have this conversation almost on a daily basis with people mm -hmm. about the the balance between wellness or well-being and, and performance. It's almost, I'll give you a, I'll give you a, a line that, I hear a lot in our work with um, with athletes is, and this is to be clear, this is like an old stereotype, but it's it's still kind of it's got a bit of a legacy culture. It's like you know, high performance starts where well being ends, mm. you know, and it's it's a, and, and whether people still say that out loud, I I do think there are people um, who who sort of certainly subscribe to that in 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 some little way, perhaps yeah. perhaps, yeah. but but. Um, so let's go back in time because yep. you didn't always do this. Um, and as I said, I, from what I've read um, and what I've heard, uh, your, your story is one that um, is I, f I find personally particularly interesting given my own interests and um, the, 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 the stuff I gravitate to. But how did you get to this point? Where did it start for you, mate? Hmm. Uh, born in Cambridge, England, uh, to two very musical parents, um, music mm -hmm very quickly became kind of a career choice. Uh, went to university, started doing all of the live stuff and kind of fell into musical theatre. Mm. Um, started touring the UK with shows like Grease, Footloots, stuff like that. Did a bunch of West End shows and had a very nice career as, as a musician. In what capacity there, mate? Were you playing in the bands? So in two capacities. I started out as a drummer. Um, right. and then uh, jumped over to keyboards and then actually moved up to become the music director for a lot of these mm. shows. So I was kind of the, the boss guy, if you like. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I was actually on a, on a show in Istanbul in Turkey where I met my now wife. Mm. And uh, on our second date, she said um, she, she was also British. She, she said, uh, I've, uh, I've, I've just applied for the green card and if I get it, I'm going. By the end of that same day, I found myself. I, I found myself saying, "Well, okay, I will consider New York if I am considered." Uh, long story short, we got married, moved to the states, um, and yeah, I, I kind of I continued that musical work. I worked on the U.S. tour of Bring It On, and that was with pretty much the entire creative team that would go on to produce the musical Hamilton. Mm. And I got back from Japan um, with bring it on and the music supervisor kind of Lin-Manuel Miranda's right-hand man uh, Alex Lackamore said to me listen I know I'm going to need you for Hamilton I just don't know 
quite what in in what capacity yet, but stick around. So I joined the Broadway team for six months as part of the music team. Uh, I was the, kind of the music guy that helped put in the cast that took over from the original cast. And then I took out the first national tour in the States as the music director. And then it was kind of what got me to where I am now was three months into that job, I had a, uh, I had a heart attack. Mm. Um, and I was 43 years old. Um, and long story short, this was the result of years of stress associated with high achievement. It was the result of years of pushing myself as hard as I could, running 120 miles an hour on a treadmill that was only built to go 100, mm. um, and everything associated with that, perfectionism, self-medication, all the, th- all the stuff. Mm. Um, and that was followed, sadly, by a repetitive strain injury, which meant I had to quit performing. Um, and, yeah, that's, that's why I now do what I do. There'll be people who do understand the the high stress, the pressure associated with um, you know performance, the performance arts. Mm-hmm. But there'll be a lot who probably don't. There'll be a lot. This is my guess. There'll be probably a lot who just enjoy it, you know. So and, yep. and don't necessarily recognize. So just for those who aren't necessarily you know thinking that play you know, m- directing a musical or or being involved in that world, can you just bring us into that world a little bit just to get a sense of what it's like at that level um, because I've you know I've spent time in dance companies uh, theater companies drama companies where and, and I see it and it's comparable it's absolutely comparable to the highest stakes environments well say high stakes not life and death but well it may be the heart attack case uh, but it's not life and death in you know in, in, in a military sense but certainly it's comparable to sporting it's comparable to business can you just take people into that world just for a moment? What's it like to be the music director? What, what are the challenges that you're grappling with on a show like Hamilton? Well, I, I think that's that's really the key, is that, you know, Hamilton has has taken the world by storm. I mean, it's, it's now ingrained in culture in the US in a way that a show probably has never been ingrained. Um, and as a result, the pressure was pretty overwhelming. You know, this was right at the height of... Uh, the 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 you know the the kind of effect that Hamilton was having in the states. I'll give you an example of how high the stakes were. My first meeting with some of the creative team was in a conference room, and I walked in to find the full creative team with all of the lawyers um, associated with Hamilton discussing how they were going to. Uh, respond to President Trump's negative tweet about the show following the the Broadway cast's announcement to Mike Pence, who was the VP at the time. He'd been to see the show the night before. And, you know, Hamilton was at that level. And I just remember walking in thinking, well, I've never been involved in any of this. And I think it's really important to, to uh, it's, I think it's important as far as the heart attack goes to identify two things. High performance as a music director is, as you rightly say, no different from pretty much any high performance. I think all performers, musicians, are athletes ostensibly. We have to look after ourselves in order to perform. There is a mindset attached to that. There is a physical activity attached to that, i.e. keeping in shape. There is a performance element, flow, all of that stuff. 
But I think the the two things to identify, number one, Hamilton was way bigger than anything I'd ever done. So that it's it's like, you know, you've been running for your local track team and then all of a sudden you get a call from the Olympics and it's a completely different arena. And the second thing, which is the most important thing, I think, is that I think every performer reacts to stress differently depending on who they are. So what was never discussed in my interview for Hamilton, what was never really gotten to the bottom of, was how much preparation I had to do to be as good as everybody else because I wasn't quite as good as everybody else thought I was. But also the pressure that I put myself under to be perfect Mm. to get to that place. Now, I can categorically state, partly because it's been confirmed by you know, cardiologists and psychologists that perfectionism played a considerable role in my heart attack because the internal pressure to to deliver was as big, if not bigger, than the external pressure to deliver. And I, I think the, the combination of all of that stuff helps answer the question of why I got to the point where my body just couldn't take it anymore. Which, again, it... Does, so this is this is beautiful because it gives us this way in because on the one hand and and I'm going to speak somewhat bluntly and then you can add the nuance but on one hand it sounds like that inner drive was the reason for your success but that inner drive was also the reason for significant negative outcomes is that Absolutely. fair to say yes so yeah so it's that it's you know it's a great strength until it's not and and I'm curious to to hear from you Julian where. Where did you feel that drive came from? Is that, you know, like you mentioned, you know, you had two musical parents and mm-hmm. um, I'm just curious to like, yeah, where did that, you, you said, you know, you've gone on a treadmill at 120 miles an hour that's only built for 100. Where, where did that come from for you, do you think? Was that purely your stuff or was it other people's stuff? Was it by virtue of the environments you found yourself in? How did, how did that come to be? Yeah, I, I think I'm probably similar to most people in the fact that there are two sides to that story. The healthy side is that, you know, I was very motivated. Um, I had high standards. I was conscientious, had a high drive, good work ethic, all the stuff. And I wanted to succeed. I, I really enjoyed what I, what I did and I loved working. I loved achieving. Um, the downside to that was that my perfectionism created incredibly low self-esteem. And so part of my drive was associated with my identity. It was associated with my need to, uh, my need for perfection, because at some point as a kid, and this is why I wrote a kid's book about perfectionism, some point as a kid, I equated mistakes to losing love so my mother used to be my she was my very first piano teacher so at prime years when my brain was growing and my behaviors were expanding etc etc I was like if you make a mistake this is all subconscious behavior if I make a mistake my mother will love me less and so hence perfectionism became the driver for the unhealthy side of what we're talking about. So, you know, it's that both adaptive and maladaptive perfectionism that I now understand. I now help high achievers in the same way that you do work through this stuff. Um, but yeah, it's stuff that I didn't know then. It was it was a one-dimensional thing 
that I didn't fully understand, uh, but now I do. It's it's very interesting to de- decompartmentalize those issues so that you can kind of prioritize and move forward. I'm treading carefully when I ask this next question. How did how did or does your mum respond when she hears you say that? Well, um, very sadly, she never knew about it. Um, so my I got the job on Hamilton. Um, my last lucid conversation with my mother was actually me telling her that I'd got the job. Oh, wow. Um, about a month after that, uh, she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and she died five weeks later. Wow. And... She actually should have been in San Francisco uh, with my dad um, at the time that I had the heart attack. And instead, it was just dad. And he arrived about four or five days later because he changed his plan. Um, but yes, it's um, that would be an interesting conversation. Mm. And it's obviously a conversation that I kind of had with dad. He's a perfectionist too. I think they both were. Dad, less so than mum, maybe. Um, but yeah, it, I I don't know. It's 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 interesting, isn't it? And it's that whole thing of the fear attached to letting go of what we think we've used to achieve certain things is immense, and it actually prevents many people from embracing the type of thinking I now preach. Yeah. Um, and it would be interesting to see, you know, I, I personally find, and this is taking my mother out of the equation, but you'll see why my brain has kind of gone there. It's that the older the person is, the harder it is to get them to adopt new behaviours. And that's, again, part of the reason why I wrote a kid's book, get in there early. So you actually, you know, you've got less work to do as an adult. Mm. Um so, yeah, I, I don't know what she'd say. I think she'd agree to some of it, maybe, maybe not. Um, either way, sadly, we're not going to find out. Did you know what was happening? Like, like I'm not saying did you know you are going to have a heart attack, but did you know that this motivation was this double-edged sword, as we're talking about now, or did it take the, the a heart attack for you to have this moment of clarity and insight and, and, and the feedback from you know, doctors and whatnot. So what was, what was your thinking, you know, as you were heading towards the, the, the heart attack and, and, and how did it change on the other side of it? Well, headed towards the heart attack was just get the job done. That's all I was right. thinking, just survive and get the job done. Cause we'd done the kind of most stressful part of the job in terms of getting the show on its feet and open, but there was still a huge amount of pressure to build at that point, they didn't really know how we were going to structure understudies um, because it was a touring production. It had different delineation or uh, it, 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 it had different ways to um, break down that I needed to get my head around from a leadership perspective that brought extra kind of pressure to the problem. But in answer to your question, it kind of, you know, how much did the, I mean, the perfectionism played a huge role in the heart attack. Did I know what my perfectionism was before the heart attack? Absolutely not. I had no idea how perfectionistic I was. We never talked about it as a family. 
I never really understood that I was as perfectionistic as, as I was, period, until the heart attack. And that's a lot of the reason why I've done the work that I have on perfectionism, because, you know, I find, you know, there's great irony in brilliant books like Brené Brown's The Gifts of Imperfection. Prior to the heart attack, I would have been in an airport and seen that book and walked straight past it because to me there was no gift in imperfection. The minute you hit a pain point, the minute you have a heart attack, the minute you realize, huh, okay, yes, I should be reading this book. And I read this book and it's brilliant. Um, So that's a lot of the reason why I do the work that I do is to hopefully inspire people to get in front of the pain point before it happens. And I think the, the, the angle that I'm taking is that the reason why the kind of through my own experience, but also through the research that I did, the reason why people don't is that they're not brought to the table with the right language. So for example, old language or previous language um, for perfectionists was you have to overcome your perfectionist to be or your perfectionism to be healthy. Now that's never going to work for a perfectionist because they value their perfectionism. They might know that the maladaptive side of it screws with them, but they value the adaptive stuff so much that they don't want to play with it. The language I use is slightly different. I'm not expecting you to overcome your perfectionism. And please never say in my presence that you're a recovering perfectionist. It drives me nuts, that phrase. Um, Because what arguably we should be doing is Accepting that perfectionism is in existence, we should be strategic with that perfectionism in such a way that it allows you to maximize the potential of the good stuff and getting rid of the bad stuff. And this was the subject of my whole TED talk, which was Mm. how can we use self-compassion to mitigate our experiences with perfectionism and depression? And so... And there, there are there are ways, and you know those ways can be very powerful and still kind of allow you to exist on a perfectionistic level in a healthy way to continue help uh, helping you achieve, but you get rid of all the bad stuff, which is obviously where you want to be. Yeah, I, I want to explore this in 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 two ways. The first way I'd like to explore it is, as you said in your own words, you didn't you weren't aware that you were a perfectionist or, or you certainly didn't think of yourself in that way. So let's imagine that we've got um, some people listening to this podcast who perhaps are in that bucket but don't realise they're in that bucket. I'm, I'm curious to um, hear from you how you um, not only bring them to the table but actually let them know there's a table in the first place. Like what are some of the, what are some of the questions or reflections or, or, or stimulus that you could put out there that might get someone who's thinking, oh, okay, actually, yeah, this is something perhaps I'd need to be a little more aware of than, than currently I am. Or, mm. or at the very least, it's something I can explore. Yeah, well, for adults, I strongly encourage that they take the multidimensional perfectionism scale, which was written by two psychologists, Hewitt and Flett. Um, in that uh, assessment, you will basically get a total perfectionism score divided across three dimensions. So you will you will understand how perfectionistic you are in three areas. Um, self-orientated perfectionism, which is when you demand perfection of yourself. Other-orientated perfectionism, where um, 
you demand perfection of others and socially prescribed perfectionism, which is where you think that other people are demanding perfection of you. And that's a great place to start because the, uh, that, that information is so eye opening and you can be one or all three of those dimensions. The first time I took that test, I kind of blew up the internet. It didn't work for a couple of days, um, particularly on the uh, self-orientated, the pressure that I put on myself. Now, very interestingly, I didn't have the same expectation of others as I did myself, but I did hold the feeling, and this likely comes from my childhood, that others expect me to be perfect. There's also some of that with what we do as high achievers, what we do as athletes, as musicians, as performers. You know, the expectation is you will perform at your highest level, and that is perfection. So, yeah, just that information allows you then to go, okay, well, how can I get strategic with that? There's a delicious um, irony in what, what you said there, because previously you said you, you had to work harder than everyone else because you, in your mind, felt you weren't as good as everyone else. Mm-hmm. And yet you expected yourself to be perfect, but your perfectionist, other, you know, your other orientated perfectionist score. Am I hearing that right? Or Well, it, it's interesting that you picked it up in that way. What I actually meant was um, I didn't really feel that everybody else was better than I was. It was the fact that I had to work incredibly hard to get to that standard. So, you know, a, a, an average music director who's been to the Royal Academy, who's played, you know, piano and keyboards at an incredibly high level, and that was their first instrument, which mine never was, mm. um, would probably take a month to learn Hamilton. There's 596 pages of vocal scores, a huge amount of music. It's basically an opera. Yeah. And different and different genres, right? So you've multi, you, you're con, you're context shifting all the time. Yeah, oh, absolutely yeah. right. Different feel, different. Yes, completely. Um, yeah, it's a real kind of uh, it's it's uh, it's like the triathlon, if you like, of music. <laughs> yeah, you kind of got to yeah. get your head around different um, different sports. Almost, it's yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's really interesting. But I I had to work really hard. You know, I'm a slow learn on the piano. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it took me hours and hours and hours of stress getting it mm. to us to the level that I knew that I could get it to that point. I had the ability, but I had to put in, you know, much, much more effort than others to get to that point. Talk to us a little bit then about, and this is where I really want to start you know, directing some more uh, practical stuff and saying, okay, so what have, what have you learned as a result of this? What, what do you now... I imagine not only do for yourself, but mm. also um, teach, um, coach others to be thinking about. So, because we, what we, I don't think what we've really touched on here is that burnout piece as well yet. But how how that contributes to the burnout, how that contributes to the the, the cardiovascular health and uh, and whatnot. Just yeah, can you? So we 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 learn what we are. We we learn the, the the perfectionist score. What 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 do we then do with that? What what are you coaching people to think about here? Yeah, I mean, I, I think to start with, it goes it goes right back to basics and it goes it comes back down to mindset. Um, many perfectionists, most perfectionists are have a fixed mindset. And so, you know, the, the first key that we need to or the first gate we need to unlock 
is getting that into a position where they're open to new information, they're open to new ways of working, they're open to releasing some of the desperation of keeping themselves in a fixed environment because that's what perfectionists thrive on. And, you know, it takes a minute because, you know, they need to trust that, you know, they can put their whole body in the water, not just the big toe. Um, That takes a minute. Um, But all it, you know, all it really is beyond that, and I think this is kind of where I get people on the hook, is I the very first thing I ask perfectionists to do is write down the pros and the cons of their perfectionism. And it's always a surprising exercise for most um, because um, they, you know, I, I push them in certain ways to think about it in through a different lens. So the cons are more identifiable to them. And what normally happens when, you know, the homework comes back is that the cons list is much longer than the client might have originally anticipated it would be. So then it becomes easier to convince somebody to to move habits because they understand, okay, well, it's not all good. And, you know, beyond that point, it's, it's then strategy in terms of, okay, well, what type of perfectionism are you struggling with? Most of it, you know, like, second second lesson in my coaching platform for example is is all right let's get into self-compassion let's look at how you talk to yourself let's look at how you you know let's look at your inner dialogue look at what those triggers are where they might come from you know it's not therapy but it's all very closely related um and, you know, that then starts to become a really positive platform because, you know, we start building that new positive language that then builds on the new knowledge um, that then, you know, gets uh, implemented via the growth mindset and things start to start to change. I wonder um, where you're meeting, you know, where people are meeting you in their in their journey. Um is it a case that people tend to have had a moment where they realize things need to change and that's how they engage you? Or is it more, I, I imagine, it's not dissimilar to some of the work I do, you might be presenting an, an event and you put something out there and people have a light bulb moment and approach you after that. I'm, I'm curious about the the volition or the agency that people show in going to you to kind of want to address this or mm. do you find some people do some people go hey uh, Julian I need you to talk to this person this person and this person yeah it, it's uh, it's a fascinating one and I'll be honest it it's still that side of it is still very much a consideration on a daily basis for my business because you know I've moved away from coaching individuals and I now work much more organizational level to fix culture and employee retention through the burnout lens um, because the the variables attached to how and why individuals want to address this stuff is pretty wide it's big and it's difficult to predict Um, and so that's a lot of the reason why I've gone the, the, the kind of business angle that I have but I think you know, again, it's what language I was hoping originally that I would inspire people to get in front of the pain point by using language like, you know, 
find next level performance, next level life fulfillment by addressing these issues. Mm. And as with anything in life, we don't buy anything that we don't really either want or need. Now, we don't buy something that we want unless we are there's some form of guarantee attached to it. We're much more likely to abide, to buy what we need. And so perfectionism management for me became much less about giving, you know, trying to sell to people in terms of I can help you move up. And it became a I can stop you from moving down any more than you already are. Um, and I think it's sad that kind of it's it's at that point, if that makes sense. And I'm trying to do something about that through my speaking work. Um, but I think that's uh, that's just life, you know. It's like, well, you know, how how do we buy and sell anything? Mm. So if we think about um, you know shifting the lens a little bit, I mean, perfectionism obviously contributes in, not in every case necessarily, but certainly in, in in the lens that we're thinking about here. But you know, the idea of burnout, mm. or not the idea of it, the very real um, experience of burnout. Um, I think burnout is, and I'm sure you get multiple uh variations of this but burnout's one of those things which i think everyone kind of thinks they know what it is but it probably means different things to different people just for the purposes of our conversation how do you frame and think about burnout in terms of its definition and in terms of its scale like how bigger um how big an issue do you do you see burnout as being when you when you're engaging with the different people and and more broadly you know, it's zooming out from who you just work with but on a on a societal level yeah uh well there's a lot to unpack there um all right so what is burnout well officially burnout is chronic workplace stress that has not been managed properly that's the world health organization's um description of it so crucially there it's workplace stress so burnout isn't anything to do with family issues or money concerns it's workplace stress that hasn't been managed correctly so stress and burnout are two different things I like to think of stress as like, you know, pressure from above, like too much, not enough time. Whereas burnout is like you're, you're empty, you're holding a cup up going, please fill it up because I've got nothing left. When we burn out, the three dimensions of burnout are chronic exhaustion, um, cynicism and detachment. So we get really cynical uh, about our work, who we work with, who we work for, and all of that leads us to detach. Um, we can even detach from ourselves, kind of, you know, almost like we're above ourselves looking down. Um, the third dimension is ineffectiveness and lack of accomplishment. And this is the bit that really screws with high achievers because burnout makes us so ineffective, but because high achievers often rely on their productivity to feel good about themselves, self-esteem, self-worth, they don't feel a lack of accomplishment. And that's really what, what sets them off. Um, burnout is a huge issue, massive issue. So I think the most recent statistic is that 77% of all employees in the States have felt some degree of burnout in their current roles. 95% of HR managers say that burnout is the principal saboteur of employee retention. And that's based on the statistic that 77% of burned out employees are reportedly looking for new jobs. 
And it's a you know massively costly business. You know, industry spent one point eight. Uh, sorry, one hundred and eighty million in healthcare costs last year. Every year they lose one point eight trillion dollars in lost productivity, and they spend up to two hundred percent of a uh, burned out employee's annual salary to replace them. Massively costly business. It's a mm. it's a huge huge problem that too many people think. So the, the two big myths I try and try and get over are there's still too much thinking from C-suite that burnout is an individual problem. It isn't. It's it it, it it that is a that's a, that's part of the picture, but we have to fix the social environment. We have to fix the systems that they work in. We have to fix autonomy and flexibility and all the stuff. All of which is is the organisations standpoint Mm. and the second one is that you know there's this general belief that organizations can get away with fixing burnout by throwing wellness programs you know it's like give them give them a resilience workshop that'll fix it Mm. um and of course it doesn't um, because Mm. it requires very uh detailed strategy uh which Mm. is the work that i love doing um it uh, takes open-minded c-suite to get there but once we're there we can do really good stuff yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The the, the the obvious tension, like, look at how much this is impacting you, but but you're holding the view that this is something they need to fix. Yes, and that yeah, and just closing that gap a little bit because it to me it's it's quite apparent, you know, that this is it's a me and a we thing, you know, like it's it's not something we just. In, but 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 I would I'd go as far to say, and I've, I've I've said this numerous times, you know, we often we often. Um, even, you know, as early as kids are at school, you know, you need to turn up ready to learn. You need to turn up, you know, you need to fix your mindset. You right. know, you need to, and it's like, well, yeah, but what? Are you, where are you asking me to do this? You right. Know, I, I, I could show up with a growth mindset, but if I walk into a room where, you know, the teacher makes me feel like mistakes are not welcome or, yeah. you know, whatever it might, or, or my peers do. Yeah. Um. So I think, yeah, reframing this as a, as a collective, of course, as an individual you know, locus of control and responsibility yeah. and whatnot. But yeah, it's it's fascinating to me that, that those organisations or those leaders who still don't necessarily get the importance of environment and the word you use, you know, culture. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's changed. Uh, I think the the pandemic shifted uh, something in into into the positive uh, box. Uh, which has been really valuable, but I, I think the the biggest thing is the biggest thing that we need to get right uh, is building trust, because you know, like it or not, a burned out employee will not put their hand up and ask for help because they're too scared of the repercussions. They also know that you know it's the organisation that's kind of contributed to the burnout in the first place. So, you know, well, if you've been bitten by a lion, why would you go to the lion for the bandage, right? Um, and that's actually why we built Pepper. So we, we've leveraged ChatGPT um, to build the personal uh, perfect equilibrium personal assistant, which becomes a personal stress and burnout coach for every single employee. Uh, it's closed AI, um, but what it does is it, what we've done is we've taken ChatGPT and we've changed the language so that it actually speaks in an empathetic way. And there's loads of solutions. And what we're trying to do is build a relationship between the AI and the user so that that then becomes 
a trust, a bridge of trust, and that trust then gets pulled into the organization because the organization are providing Pepper. Um, and, you know, there's all sorts of stuff like the boss has to put his hand up and say, I'm not watching you, you know, because that's that's a, a big thing with all of this. Uh, and again, why engagement tools don't necessarily work because there's fear of repercussion. So, yeah, it's it's moving um, and I'm excited to get into next year because there's there's I've got the feeling that, you know, there are more and more people that are aware that stress and burnout needs to be dealt with separately from general kind of mental health. So you, um, you know, you gave us some markers there in terms of being exhausted, cynical, um, detached. Is it a case, again, I'm, I'm really trying to um, give, a, give away perhaps if someone's, you know, driving, driving to work, listening to this podcast, they're going, you know what, I'm, I do feel, for example, exhausted, right? Let's just say I'm, I'm absolutely knackered. If they don't then feel cynical or detached, so they're going, but I'm not cynical, I actually, you know, um, there's something on your website actually which jumped out at me like the idea that um, and f- forgive me if I just mangle it a bit but you were talking about how the work I, th- I believe in music in general it was so rewarding but it was exhausting mm-hmm. and so um, my guess is I don't know but my guess is that it, when you're in that heat of that moment there if I was to say to you how you're feeling and you went oh, I'm exhausted I I wonder if you would then have said and I'm also really cynical about people, and I'm also really detached. I guess what I'm wondering is, like, you you mentioned about getting ahead of the pain points. So it, let's say someone's working, you know, because how many people say, oh, I'm just exhausted at the moment, so, sure. so tired, so busy. Sure. Yeah, so let's say you're faced with with, with that. What, what, what are the other – I know that you've given me the other markers, but how – mindful should I then be like yeah what, what sort of things are you suggesting we should be thinking about here yeah well I, I think you know to your point burnout is very much a combination of those things and you know exhaustion up to a certain point is good for us and we kind of need it in order to perform well it's a, it's a you know it's a, a big part of flow right mm-hmm. and so we we can't be oh I'm exhausted so therefore I'm burned out I think, you know, the the biggest thing that I encourage people to do is, you know, self-awareness is so important when we're talking about this stuff. You know, 95% of us think that we're self-aware. The actual statistic is somewhere between 12 and 15%, which basically means that at any one time, 80% of the world's population is walking around not knowing what they're really thinking and feeling or making a determination are basically lying to themselves about what's really going on. Um, And so simple questions on a regular basis. What am I thinking? What am I feeling? What am I sensing? What do I need right now? Will help keep you in that kind of consistent zone of discovery, which will help you connect with feelings of detachment, feelings of isolation, feelings of overwhelm all speak to burnout and then beyond that point you probably want to take the six pillars of burnout and cross-reference the six pillars of burnout work overload uh, lack of control insufficient reward feelings of unfairness breakdown of community and conflict of values and in the same way that i work when i work with perfectionists it's like okay well what are the pros and the cons? Let's look at 
all of the pros, how can we maximize those? How can we take away the cons? It's getting strategic with your work situation with each of those six pillars. So what can you do about work overload? Now, a lot of work overload is actually associated with lack of control because people don't have the autonomy they need in order to control their work overload, so therefore they burn out. Hence the reason why it's not just the employee's responsibility. Now, the employee's responsibility is, well, how am I thinking about the stress? Is my perceived stress debilitating? Or is it enhancing? Can I use, can I reframe this stress in a different way to actually make it you to, to make it work for me? Um, from an organizational standpoint, what systems can I build where I know exactly where uh, when the employee is struggling? And that you know, system B kicks in that is plan B that helps keep stuff off their plate so that they can stay healthy. And it really is that simple. You just get super uh, str- strategic with systems, both from an organizational and an individual perspective to, to overcome burnout that way. And so when you, you those six pillars, you, you're suggesting that more enlightened um, teams, organizations, are whether it's specifically those six pillars, but they sound like a pretty useful uh, frame framework, they're, they're digging into that and they're getting input from all the different stakeholders in the organization about what it means or is it okay so it's not an individualistic thing like dan's struggling with burnout it's like saying okay let's think about this across our organization yeah is that that right yes i mean what what i do is so i get a global uh viewpoint of where where an organization is with Mm. stress and burnout and then i bury deeper and get an idea of where each department is so I can tell how advertising is doing compared to marketing, for example. So then I have different scores and different things that I need to play with strategically to help this department move forward, which will be different from the department next to them, which I'll use different strategy. But all of that from a global strategy and from a strategic standpoint in that way, the whole idea is that we have to get everybody at every level on the same ship to be sailing to the same destination and the same destination will pass each of those six pillars it's interesting that you said they sound pretty solid that's because they are because they weren't written by me (laughs) they're (laughs) written by uh, dr christina maslash she's world leader on burnout she's done all sorts of incredible work um, and yeah, I, I follow her kind of thinking with this to the T really, because it's brilliant mm. and it really is. If you get each, if you get the systems right to attack the strategy and you, you're all sailing in the right direction to the same destination past these six points, you, you can quickly do this. And this is the other big thing that I'm trying to, um, really kind of hold C-suite accountable to one of the many objections to not addressing burnout is that it will be too disruptive and it will take too long. Mm. It's much easier for a boss to go, oh, give them resilient stuff, give them, you know, the odd keynote, this, that, and the other, because everything else will take years. No, it won't. Mm. You know, my framework is 90 days, dependent on the size of the organization. And I kind of specialize in, in small business, sort of 1,500 employees mm. down. Um, but you can do it in 90 days. Uh, it needs 
a lot of effort, but you can totally do it. And once you've done it, you've built such a positive cultural situation that you're not only fixing it for now, you're, fi- you're actually fixing it forever, provided everyone's sticking to what we've agreed to do. Hey, I just want to step out of the conversation for a minute to say it's exactly this kind of stuff that we really get to grips with in the Habits of Leadership Academy. So we take the ideas and all the conversation that we've had in, in a podcast episode and we, we latch on to a framework like the one Julian's just shared with us. And we say, okay, let's now apply that to our lives. And in a group coaching context, that's exactly what we do. We really try to make this as practical and as tangible as possible so you can apply it for your own life, but also the people who you know you might live with and love or work with and lead. So if you'd be interested in joining in that kind of work, then head over to habitsofleadership.com, click on the Academy page and see if it's right for you. Got to get back in there now. Hope you're enjoying the convo. Just for those who might have missed those six pillars, because you rattled them off pretty quickly earlier, and but now we've sort of doubled down on the importance of them. Yeah, can you just t- just take just just rattle them off again, just so people listening could go, okay, let's think about these things. Yeah, just, for sure. So they are. Yeah. So work overload, which speaks for itself. Mm. Yeah. Um, lack of control. So you might be feeling that you haven't got enough control in your work, which might be due to micromanagement, for example. Um, it might be that lack of control might be, you know, I want to work at home for three days a week, but your boss is forcing you in for all five, all of that stuff. Insufficient reward. So you just don't feel rewarded for the work that you do. Um, and from an organizational perspective, that's always really fascinating because, you know, people think, well, that takes a long time. No, it doesn't. It takes an email on a Friday saying, hey, team. Uh, just wanted to say thanks and, you know, really proud of all the work that we're doing. Really excited to be with you on Monday. Have a great weekend. You'd be amazed at what that 20-second email will do for burnout. Yeah. Um, so it's for, not just – so we're not specifically just talking about more like financial reward. We're talking about recognition. We're talking about a sense of value and contribution. Absolutely. It, and, it, and it's yeah. not financial reward. Well, yes, right. financial reward is a part of it. But it's more, yeah. it's more reward and recognition. It's, it's making yeah, right. sure that you understand what people need because everyone's different. Not everyone enjoys, you know, oh, can Sarah stand up, you know, 700 employees, well done, blah, blah, blah. Sarah's Most like, people don't enjoy that, right? Exactly, right? So <laughs> what do they need? And, you know, yeah. getting that information is relatively easy and then you can build the system around it. Um, feelings of unfairness is the fourth pillar. Um, which is huge from a, you know, a, a, a racial perspective, um, a sex perspective, an age perspective, a disability perspective. You know, are, do you feel like you are being treated unfairly? Are you being passed over um, for promotion, for example? Um, mm. it's, it's a big one to unpack, Um but the first thing I do with with individuals with that is I get them to really challenge whether that feeling, what the facts are surrounding that scenario, because there's so much bias that we bring to our own situation internally that we have to challenge that before we do anything else. Uh, fifth pillar is breakdown of community. Um, so when we burn out, we we detach. So we we stop 
we basically stop doing anything with anybody else. So there's this huge breakdown of community and the organisation in particular can do a lot to, to save that. And then lastly is conflicts of values. Um, and I, I'm a strong advocate that that is more the organisation's responsibility than it is the individual um, because they, should be, they shouldn't be employing somebody that has that doesn't have values that aren't congruent with their own. And if they're saying, well, you know, this is Gen Z and they're young, they don't quite know what their values are, well, what are you doing to actually help them discover that before you employ them so that when they do burn out, they can hold on to the fact that they they want to live in a, let's choose an example, climate change, for example. You know, they're very focused on climate change being something that is important to them. They work for this company where climate change is important and let's say they're, they they're battling single-use, uh, the, they're, they're promoting the ban of single-use plastic. Even when they're exhausted, even when they feel feelings of unfairness or lack of control, they will hold on to those values for dear life to keep them from drowning. Um, and it's it's the, the values element is actually the very first thing I do with C-Suite. It's, okay, yeah. what are they? And we, we move from there. Yeah, I was actually, it's interesting you said that's the first thing, because I'm curious to know if these are, if there's, a, are they sequential, are they weighted, no. is there one that if, no, okay, so it really could, you know, they could all be, um, have different weightings for different individuals, but they're all of Yes, and, and that's that's data that I actually get, I, I kind of do high touch um, workshops at that point. So once I've done my testing, I'll then go into an organisation for a period of time and speak to everybody from a keynote perspective, but then I get into the weeds. Some of it's one-to-one, some of it's group stuff with middle management, some of it is departmental. All right, let's talk to advertising. What are your problems? Um, And that then allows me to shift things around as I see fit in in, in tandem with these six pillars. But to your point, my picture is never the same. The solution is never identical to a previous solution because every organization is different. Yeah. So every organization is different. Every person's different. Yes. But I'm wondering if there's any, uh, I, know, I kind of think I know what the answer is going to be here, but ask it anyway. You know, like, have you noticed any, if, if not fundamental truths, if not that, some common themes other than these pills, but like things that if you're thinking about nothing else, organizational leader or if you're thinking about nothing else individual person who might be a you know questioning whether they're they're on this track or not is, is there is there just something that you just hold to be this this is just core you know this is just something that is even if you didn't want to do the the extensive work that you would do with an organization if you're going to do nothing else just do this please yeah well it, it, if the question is you know what's what's the what's the kind of largest or loudest call to action Mm. from an organizational standpoint, it will be look at your employee retention because as I said earlier on in the interview, the statistics are big for burnout is a problem. Burnout heavily contributes to employee retention. If you've got an employee retention problem, then there's every chance that you've got a burnout issue. So let's get to the bottom of that with some testing and we'll figure it out. From an individual standpoint, it's a, 
how much is your life impacted right now um, by your work outside of exhaustion for the reasons that you identified earlier? We're all exhausted all of the time because that's part of life. But are you at the point where you're feeling detached? Are you at the point where you're home at weekends, but you're not really at home? You're not really with anyone because you can't connect. Like what's the commotion, what's the emotional connection for you? I, I struggled with this one deeply after losing Hamilton and my career and all that stuff because everything got so big, I just suppressed everything for years. And it was only actually through the pandemic that I realized how big the problem was. And luckily I had some time, so I did the work. But, you know, check in with you again, using that self-awareness stuff. Where are you in compared to in comparison to where you were three months ago, six months ago, 12 months ago? Keep going back. And what are the triggers? What are the patterns? And again, the more digging you can do, the more information you will mine. And that information is power to then use to take forward and, and fix what you need to fix. I'm um, a big advocate of, of, of journaling in that regard because mm. I think we can be a bit slippery. Go, well, how was I feeling three months ago? To be honest, I can't remember how I was feeling three days ago. But if I can <laughs> go back to my you know, if I can go back to my journal and and, and, and jotting that down. And, and I'm curious about whether you have any, um, just to sort of round round out our time here. If you have any, um, whether it's a practice or a ritual or something that you use, given your life experience and given what you do, that helps you remain centered and helps you remain in touch with with um, how you're going mm. um it's normally meditation for me um and you know i'm not uh, i i don't preach habit as in you know all of my clients have to journal for 15 minutes a day no it doesn't work like that because each everyone's got their own thing and i very much recognize that the power for me personally is the combination of meditation, breath work, and self-compassion. So I'll use self-compassion mantras. There'll be a bit of mindfulness in there. But just getting back to that center for me, I, you know, I'll be honest, I probably, I probably only do that maybe twice a week, except when I know that I'm not in perfect equilibrium. When I know, yeah. when I can feel that, you know, my actions, my behaviors aren't quite right, I'll go back to that meditation because it really helps me. Well, um, Julian, I've really, um, I knew I would. Just, uh, <laughs> I said, I was saying before we, we started recording, I knew I was going to find this a really compelling conversation. And my guess is that plenty of people listening will also have found it really useful. So if people want to find out more about you and more about Perfect Equilibrium and the kind of work you do, um, what, what's the best way uh, for people to find you online? Yeah, the website, perfectequilibrium.co. Uh, has all the information there there's a couple of there's a burnout assessment on there if you if you kind of want to find out where you're at with burnout um, and you can sign up for pepper there too uh, when we launch probably later later this year or early 24 but uh, yeah it's been a pleasure to be here dan thanks for having me and before you go like so the, the kids book that you've mentioned a couple of times where might we find that because i know we'd have plenty of people interested in that yeah that's uh, that's called captain perfection and the secret of self-compassion you can find that on amazon uh, i think kind of most most kind of good 
uh, bookstores. But um, yeah, Amazon's an easy place for it. Um, and the the TEDx for any uh, perfectionists kind of looking for sort of my the the, the two words that I strong that's kind of the biggest thread in all of my work is self compassion and that that TED uh, I think it was called uh, reframing perfectionism the vital need for change uh, you can you can check that out that will that will give you some idea on how you might be able to help yourself with that too. Well, I'm going to put all. I'm going to dig all those links up, and I'll put them in the in the show notes there. So, um, yeah, just all that's left to say is, mate, thanks so much for joining us. I've I've, I've had a real, yeah, great hour there, just reflecting and, and thinking. So, thank you very much for sharing. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me, Dan. So, as I mentioned, if you're interested in learning more about Julian's work, then all the links are in the show notes. And just one last time for this. If you like the idea of connecting with us and working with us to actually, um, you know, really tailor the concepts of not only in this podcast, but other um, episodes in which we explore things like belonging or psych safety or motivation, and you really want to get to grips with what does it mean in, in the real world, you know, not just what does it mean on a, on a podcast, then the Habits of Leadership Academy might just be for you. So head over to habitsofleadership.com, click on the Academy page, all the information is there, And uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing you in the Academy in 2024. As we always say, if you like this conversation, there is a fair chance someone you know would. So please feel free to share this as far and as wide as you can. And while you're doing that, make sure you give us a five-star review. Maybe leave a comment. Uh, Subscribe, of course. You don't want to miss a single episode of The Habits of Leadership. Um, All those little things, they are little, um, but they all add up and they make quite a big difference, as it turns out, on the way that the podcast is uh, then shared to people who are yet to even hear of us. So if you could take that 10 seconds to do that, it really would be most appreciated. Until our next episode, thank you so much for listening. Take care. Take it easy.